Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. What we've seen with the Sunak campaign is starting out on completely the wrong foot, as if he was pitching to a sort of globalist metropolitan elite. I think if he does want to stay in British politics, he should bow out pretty soon. And I'm afraid to say I think now Labour looks much more economically credible than the candidates of the Conservative Party. Waiting for Keir Starmer's personality to turn up, like waiting for the 19 bus, (laughs) co-pilot. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's the height of summer, co-pilot, and the UK's gorging itself on a diet of barbecue burgers, lager, strawberries and prosecco. Planet Normal caters to all tastes. Meanwhile, as David Attenborough taught us, it's the lionesses who do the hunting, while the lions <laughs> just lie around, preening their luxuriant manes. In football as in nature, Planet Normal salutes the England women's football team, European champions no less. It was Chloe Kelly who, having scored the winner in the 2-1 victory over Germany, whipped off her top in celebration. The image of Kelly running around the Wembley turf in her Nike sports bra, a world-class athlete at the top of her game, is already not just an iconic British sporting image, but a lasting symbol of female empowerment, and rightly so. Meanwhile, Alison has talk of football subsides to be replaced by the usual British summer fair of hosepipe bands, heatstroke and Timothy White's sunscreen. (laughs) The UK's political psychodrama rumbles on. Liz Truss seems to be maintaining her lead over Rishi Sunak as the Tory hustings continue, travelling around the country, before closing in London on August the 31st. But it strikes me, co-pilot, that neither candidate's being honest about the extent of the economic challenge this autumn, a challenge for which we seem woefully unprepared. And when we look back, these slow weeks of performative Tory politics, for all the joys of summer, may seem deeply indulgent. A major missed opportunity. Well, I've got a suggestion to make to you this week, starting off. How about we add to the Tory leadership ballot the name Serena Viegman? She's going to be the New England football manager (laughs) for the men, I think. (laughs) Never mind football manager. She's clearly the only competent person left in the country. I mean, she managed to get an (laughs) England team to beat Germany without going to penalties. I mean, how remarkable is that? I love the way during the match, as we were all screaming at home, she kind of permitted herself a sort of wry smile. I mean, She's absolutely phenomenal. She's like Sven Joran Eriksson, but she actually wins. (laughs) She is. She is. And I wrote a piece about the Lionesses' victory, which some Planet Normal listeners would have read and been accused by some readers of going over the top. But let's remind ourselves, Liam, that female football in the UK was banned by the FA in 1921 and they stated that the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged and the ban wasn't lifted until 1971. So as you said in your lovely intro, it's an extraordinary thing and I'm going to be like every other female in the country. I'm going to be purchasing me Nike sports bra, which will help with the planet normal G-force. Crikey. Let's tell the listeners the truth, because you're actually on the med, aren't you, recording? You might hear the cicadas, <laughs> the crickets or whatever you call them in the background. <laughs> I am indeed sheltering, cowering under my parasol as the Mediterranean sun beats down on my fair Celtic skin. Sorry, I think we should say to listeners that you did say before we started recording that your flip-flops had melted, which takes us swiftly to Rishi Sunak's campaign, doesn't it, really? <laughs> it does, except that my... <laughs> £2.50 flip-flops are nothing compared to his 400 quid sliders or whatever they're called. But before we move on to the football, I just want to mention, as well as Chloe Kelly, 
and the rest of the team who did so well under fabulous management, as you say. I want to mention Jill Scott because, of course, oh. while everyone is talking about <laughs> Chloe Kelly and her bra... I knew you'd love Jill Scott. I think Jill Scott really embodies why we beat the Germans because for years the Germans in all kinds of sports have needled us because we like fair play and they try and psych us out and they look down mm. on British football teams in particular. Oh, they're all thick and they eat chips and all the rest of it. But Jill Scott, Jill Scott has got 160 England caps. How amazing mm. is that? She first played for England in 2009 and there she was winning yeah. at Wembley over the Germans. And there's this absolute, if any Planet novelist has the stomach for it and they haven't seen it yet, the viral <laughs> clip, just Google Jill Scott and Germany and you'll see not her fantastic performance with the ball. You'll see her fantastic performance with her mouth as she gets in the face of a German player who'd been niggling and niggling and niggling her mm. and basically told her where to go in no uncertain Anglo-Saxon terms. And it is a crude thing to point out. But on the other hand, this was by no means, you know, as I've seen some commentators who clearly know nothing about football say, this was by no means, you know, a nice performance. No. It shows that you can play the game in a fair way where everyone's nice to each other. Absolute nonsense. The English team got right in the face of the German team. There were lots of what you'd call the black arts going on of, gouging and shirt pulling and we gave as good as we got we gave as good as we got and sometimes that's what it takes at the highest level in sport and some people will shoot me down for saying that but it's true we were not psyched out by the Germans and so often in football given the astonishing history of rivalry between these two great sporting nations and you've got to hand it to the Germans they're always there or thereabouts right they never ever ever give up and particularly when it comes to football, they've beaten us so many more times than we've beaten them. They've won more World Cups than we have. The game that we invented and the English women, they showed some huge fighting spirit. And for me, Jill Scott really embodied that. I knew you'd love her fusillade of foul mouths. <laughs> what can I say? She's my kind of girl, you know. <laughs> she is your kind of girl. She's a, Yeah, she absolutely is. And she is the oldest of the lionesses at the age of 35. That is amazing. I know. What an amazing achievement to play at that level. Our family was all watching together and my beloved other half, who you know, said he could have told us to the exact minute, the moment when the English men would have given up. He said he knew when they would have given up. And the girls, they were absolutely shattered, weren't they? And they just kept going. They weren't the best technical players, we have to admit. But let me just end this bit, Liam, by quoting my quote of the week. Funnily enough, you picked up on the wonderful Jill Scott. And my quote of the week came from Doreen Scott, mum of Jill Scott. And Doreen says... What sticks in my mind is Jill's first competitive game, age seven, the only girl on the team. One of the opposition's parents shouted, just kick her down. She's only a girl. Never give up on your dreams. <laughs> Isn't that absolutely wonderful? That's wonderful. So someone else, another female who's had a very good week, Elizabeth Truss has picked up endorsements, some very heavyweight endorsements, co-pilot from the Daily Telegraph, no less, our beloved organ, which is pretty much the house journal, really, of Tory party members. So that's a highly significant endorsement. And the Daily Mail, the other paper of the right, also came out for Liz. And we've seen some really heavyweight names coming on board to the trust campaign Penny Mordant, one of our Planet Normal favourites, who came third. Penny told me she doesn't think Rishi can campaign, which might be a bit of a drawback in a general election. So she's putting her support behind Liz for her toughness. And she thinks that we need a really tough customer at the moment. Ben Wallace and Nadim Zahawi also two other very strong ministers who are endorsing her. Now, this is very interesting, Liam, because you won't believe this, but it's almost as if all these uh, thick Tory party members are failing to heed the wise words of all the broadsheet columnists and BBC commentators who are telling them it's got to be Rishi. 
The latest YouGov poll, which came out in the middle of the week, showed Liz Truss extending her lead over Rishi Sunak to 34 points, with 60% of Tory members saying they will vote for Liz. And Truss is ahead in every single age group, every single region of the country, and among both men and women. The only category where Rishi beats Liz is, you're going to be surprised about this co-pilot, is among Tories who supported Remain. So as I predicted, co-pilot, we're going to talk about your mystical powers later with the energy prices. But as I predicted, Sunak is on course to get a worse drubbing than Jeremy Hunt against Boris. What say you, Liam? That's right. You did say that a couple of weeks ago, actually. And Jeremy Hunt, of course, lost to Boris one third to two thirds of the Tory faithful. I think what we're seeing now is the Tory party members, and obviously these are polls, we can't be sure, but they are acting as they do in a tribal way. They want their new leader, the new prime minister, to be seen to have a ringing endorsement, to give her as much power as possible and I have to say that Rishi Sunak, for all his glitzy education and his enviable CV, isn't doing a great job of campaigning, is he? Awful. Liz Truss has made some mistakes this week and we'll discuss them too. Yeah. But Sunak seems to be flip-flopping around all over the place. I wrote in the Telegraph at the weekend about his policies on the Green Belt, which some Telegraph readers will agree with. You know, we will never pretty much ever build on the green belt. But it's really easy to say that. It's really easy to press that Tory hot button, particularly among the party membership, who with all respect tend to be older people who have long owned their own home. But for younger voters, younger voters actually do research and go beyond these headlines. And they know many of them, because I've got, had many letters and emails from them over the years, that the Greenbelt is now more than twice as big as it was in 1979. And much of it is urban scrub of no aesthetic value whatsoever that should absolutely be developed. If you built within 10 minutes of the stations on the outskirts of London that make up Crossrail, for instance, stretching from Reading in Berkshire all the way over to Essex and Kent, Abbeywood and Shenfield, respectively, if you built on land within 10 minutes of those stations, you could build several million homes, which could get rid of a lot of the backlog in the southeast. Mm. But you can't because that area is greenbelt. I'm not saying we should build on parts of the greenbelt that are of aesthetic value. Of course, and obviously national parks and all the rest of it are sacred. But in England, we use less than 2% of our land mass for residential homes, and the Greenbelt is 13% of our land mass. It's absolutely mad that we're not building more homes for younger people. And Rishi Sunak knows all this. I've discussed all this with him at great length, but he saw in the dying embers of his campaign to just press that Greenbelt button again, spreading absolute nonsense. I just don't think this guy's very good at politics, if I'm honest. I hope Planet Normal listeners are aware how lucky we are to have aboard our rocket, the UK's premier and leading authority on housing. Who else could have told us what was the available land within 10 minutes of Shenfield Station? It's for this that people tune in, Halligan. But no, I mean, seriously, I think that you've made, you know, obviously you've just made some incredibly valid points. And what we've seen with the Sunak campaign is starting out on completely the wrong foot, as if he was pitched to a sort of globalist metropolitan elite voting group, forgetting that he was addressing the Tory party faithful who do tend to believe in conservatism and tax cuts. So we saw this very undignified handbrake turn. You know, he suddenly said that he was going to cut the VAT on fuel, which fuel bills, which is actually quite measly amount, but we've been recommending that for many months on Planet Normal. And then when that didn't seem to be lifting the polling numbers, it's I'll cut income tax by 20%, but not for seven years, by which time I'll be living in my ninth mansion in California. I mean, how can you make a promise about cutting income tax by 20% in seven years? I mean, you know, I don't think all the sort of all the Marjories and Malcolms aren't going to have been screaming with delight about that one. In my column this week, Liam, which you'll have seen, on Sunday, Sunak actually clearly realising that the NHS is a major issue. You and I would say with the economy probably 
in the top two of the emergencies, crises facing the country. And, and Rishi Sunak, he announced a plan to introduce a temporary £10 charge for patients who fail to attend an NHS appointment without providing notice. And I don't know what you thought. I read that and I just thought, how do you even begin to deal with such epic cluelessness? Oh, it's so tin-eared. It's, so I, I mean, tin-eared. I, I, I said to you, it's almost as if Liz Truss's people have planted someone at the centre of the Rishi campaign <laughs> to come up with ridiculous notions in order to stitch the guy up. He must know, or maybe he doesn't, that if you live in Middle England, as it were, Talk of can you get a GP appointment? It's, you know, people are talking about it more than they're talking about the football. I mean, it's absolutely. It's just so mad. It's literally like the imaginary GP appointment you won't be getting. Few policy <laughs> ideas could be better designed to put distance between him and any notion that he understands anything about how normal people live. Look, it's not his fault that he's been wildly successful in business. Chapeau to him. But when he comes up with ideas that are so out to lunch, frankly, it shows that he cares more about not upsetting the producer lobbies as opposed to feeling the pain of the consumers, the voters, who make all of the public sector possible. The same with corporation tax. The idea that if you're running a small business, you're going to have to suddenly pay 25% in corporation tax rather than 19%, having been hammered by lockdown. It shows that he's not really au fait with ordinary life. And I say that with regret because I really do want him to succeed. I want him to stay in British politics. And so let me say this now. I think if he does want to stay in British politics, he should bow out pretty soon because this leadership contest isn't doing his party any good. It isn't doing the country any good. We need to get absolutely focused on what's going to happen this autumn when energy bills in October go up by another 50% minimum. There is going to be a sense among the population as a whole that all this performative hustings going around the country, rowing about tax forecasts that won't come true, is going to look very, very indulgent, as I said in my opening remarks. Mm. We need to be fully focused now on emergency energy measures. We need to be coming up with plans that are going to stop the lights going out, frankly. When you look at global energy markets, when you look at prices, when you look at the lack of energy storage here in the UK. And it's not good that the Tories are extending this all the way out to early September. I think Rishi Sunak now should throw in the towel and say, Mm. the better woman won. I'm available. I'm going to stay in politics. He has so much to offer this guy. He really does. But I think he's too young. It's too early. And with all respect to him, his political inexperience is now shining through. He would show an awful lot of judgment, wisdom and calibre if he now said, enough, let's get on with governing. I absolutely agree with you. I called for that last week in my Telegraph column. Talk about his background, Liam. I mean, you know, his dad was a GP, mum was a pharmacist. So I'm afraid there's a bit of a suspicion with me that we know we should say something on the NHS. So instead of saying GPs need to see more patients face to face, which is what the voters actually want, he suggests telling the patients to buck up their ideas rather than the doctors. And it really made me very, very cross. And if I had a vote, that alone would have made me think. Because of all the correspondence we get from Planet Normal listeners, right? And as newspaper columnists, good people just, they cannot get a GP appointment. You say that the politicians haven't really addressed how bad things are. I I would say to you, Liam, that the NHS is in an absolutely dire state. And this week we heard from Professor Gordon Wishart, former Planet Normal guest, one of the country's leading oncologists. Gordon was writing an article asking the two Tory leadership candidates, how are you going to reform the NHS to provide high quality outcomes. And at least Liz Truss has, in one of the debates, mentioned cutting the bloated NHS management. But I just feel we have to have now a leader of whatever political stripe who is not afraid to make the bold moves with the NHS. A statistic that leapt out at me, Liam, this week is that 40% of cancers are now being picked up in A&E. Yeah, I read that in your column. Absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable, because that means that those people are now seriously ill. 
as a result of their cancer it hasn't been picked Obviously, up. Obviously, it's all about catching cancer in time, isn't it? It's all about regular screening. It's all about you know seeing your GP regularly and all the rest of it. I remember that Gordon Wisher interview for Planet Normal, Alison. It was on the 9th of December last year, if anybody wants to go back and listen to it. And you say we need a leader of whatever stripe. We should talk about Labour as well, shouldn't we? Because yeah. Keir Starmer for all this psychodrama, for all the cost of living crisis, for all the fear that's out there, understandably, the National Institute, the most important independent economic think tank in the UK, bar none, the National Institute, they're now predicting a recession at the end of this year going into next year, lasting three quarters. A recession's, the definition is two quarters of negative growth. They're forecasting a three-quarter recession. That's a very serious thing. This is a really serious issue. We need to be talking about this a lot. Our leaders, Mm. for the sake of civic uh, stability, need to be seen now trying to at least tackle these problems. And that's why I highlight that when we look back on these slow months of summer and we consider that it was all about, you know, hustings, across the country as the Tory party talks to itself. This is not a good look. And that's why I think they need to bring this contest to a close. I noticed that in the debates, Rishi Sunak keeps saying, oh, I have taken steps to help the poor with the energy bills via the windfall tax. What he doesn't seem to understand, Liam, is that poor is a rapidly expanding category, isn't it? People who are in the what Theresa May used to call the just about managing classes are about to be plunged into the, oh God, how are we supposed to pay that classes, aren't they? I mean, I've been talking to young families, families where the two parents are bringing in even 50 grand a year. They may not be in a position to find an extra three or four grand. After tax. At the average household, people on very modest earnings, this isn't the people, the poor, as Rishi Sunak calls them benevolently. This is actually people who have been reasonably comfortable. Most families, Liam, can't find an extra three grand down the back of the sofa. And I've spotted online, I don't know if you've seen it, a new group called Don't Pay. And that's building momentum and you, co-pilot, a long time ago, you, A, told me that you thought inflation was already well into double digits. That's at least six months ago. And you predicted that we could see defaulting on payments. Now, people like us, we've got some flexibility with outgoings. It's not going to be great, but you know we can find that kind of money. So what would you do if if you're Liz Truss and you were to be Prime Minister? As you say, it's much too long, this contest. She should be Prime Minister next week. What emergency measures would you bring in to get these energy bills within the orbit of what normal people could reasonably be expected to pay? Well, firstly, I wouldn't be making policy announcements driven by a sort of preconceived grid put together by a consultant. Why was she talking about regional public sector pay earlier this week, only to then to have to reverse it? Again, that's uncharacteristically ill-judged by her, I thought. When it comes to energy, Rishi Sunak's support measures, you know, taking VAT off fuel, welcome though it is, he should have mentioned it six months ago when I started arguing for mm-hmm. it, that's yeah. 150, 200 quid on an annual electricity bill. He should certainly be getting behind Liz Truss and not making those renewable subsidies a political football. They should be coming straight off. But also, she should be looking to immediately increase gas storage in the UK, reopening that rough facility. It's a gas storage facility under the sea off the coast of Yorkshire, that should be happening. And at least being seen to be putting together some kind of emergency provisions, given that this autumn and winter, it is going to be about maintaining public confidence in our leaders when the going gets really, really tough. And that's why the way they present themselves over these slow summer months is so important. Look, the French nuclear industry is having a hard time because of a lack of water that they is so important in cooling their uh, nuclear reactors that account for 70% of their energy. Are we absolutely certain that the French aren't going to cut off the interconnectors upon which we rely? I'd be keeping really close to the Norwegians. That Langeland gas pipeline, a huge undersea pipeline from Norway to the east coast of the UK, is of vital strategic importance. 
our political class has to show that it's not just playing games and having discussions with itself. It has to get that money in the bank, if you like, that credibility in the bank that is taking this seriously. Keir Starmer too, somebody who we need to discuss. There's not nearly enough about energy in his policy statements either. And it strikes me as pretty feeble that Labour, given all these fears, are way, way ahead in the opinion polls. At this stage, Tony Blair was consistently 25 or 30 Mm. points ahead. And that's why among the Tory faithful, for all the psychodrama, for all the frustration with the fact that they've had three leaders over the last six years, that's what it's going to be. I think there is a sense that this next election in 2023, 2024 can be won, given that Labour are so feeble. Can I ask you something? So we saw this week BP tripled profits to seven billion in the three months to June, but is refusing to reduce prices at the pumps. Total Energies in France is offering motorists a big discount at the pump. And by the way, Liam, Velma stat of the week, France has just cancelled its TV license. No payment for TV license, and that's to help consumers through the crisis. The Our government seems very, very leaden-footed. We saw Rishi Sunak a while ago give motorists a pathetic 5p off. We know he's raking in billions from the surging VAT on fuel. Can the energy companies, can the sort of oil companies, can they brazen this out, or is there going to be a public outcry? I think they will. They've got good arguments on their side, you know, which I could wield. BP lost lots of money during parts of the pandemic. They could say, like Centrica say, that so-called upstream and downstream businesses are completely separate. Downstream being is that's where you actually get the oil and gas out the ground. Upstream is where you retail it to customers, whether it's you know household utilities or fuel, petrol and diesel for transport. But I think they are just going to brazen it out. I mean, Liz Truss is saying that she doesn't think there should be a windfall tax at all on the big energy companies. I don't think that's politically sustainable. I think there's going to need to be, even though they already pay a higher rate of corporation tax and other sorts of supplementary taxation anyway. But this is just one aspect of the political battle that we've got to have, the preparations that we've got to make ahead of this winter. So again, our elected leaders are seen to be on the side of ordinary men and women, ordinary families who are going to struggle there will unfortunately be lots of non-payment. There will be lots of protests going on. There will be issues in terms of public order and policing. I say this with regret, not to want to bring it about, but it's just common sense, it seems to me, if you look at the history of our country and many other countries. In fact, I would say, when you look at uh, the gas pipeline map, when you look at the extent of, to which European countries have gas storage compared to our storage, we are in a particularly vulnerable position. And I don't hear any of our political class articulating that. And that is a huge failure on their part. Well, uh, this morning, this very morning, Halligan, I ordered lots of logs (laughs) for my as yet to be purchased log burner, but that's coming along with my squirrel survival course, which we're both going to be going on, aren't we? Learn to shoot your dinner. (laughs) And I also, I don't have to say this to you because you're very clever and you'll be over it, but I have fixed my rate of energy for the next year as I was advised to do by our advisor. So I'm sure Planet Normal listeners all are very clever lot, but if you haven't, just make the time to do that in the next week or so because it might save you, well, at least a few hundred quid. It's painful to imagine that someone would ever have paperwork about child abuse and not do everything in their power to bring the abuser to justice. But I've been speaking to people who say that seems to have happened in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not only was he aware of the abuse, he had heard the confession of it. My colleagues and I on the Telegraph investigations team have been gathering evidence for the best part of a year, but I don't think any of us were prepared for what we'd uncover. You just wonder, what what is going on here? I'm Catherine Rushton, and this is Call Bethel, a new audio series from The Telegraph. Subscribe now, wherever you get podcasts. (laughs) 
As the Tory psychodrama continues, Labour should be making hay, of course. Yet Keir Starmer's party retains only a very slim lead in the polls. To try to understand what's going on with Labour, Planet Normal invited Professor Michael Jacobs to be our latest stowaway. Having held senior posts at both the Fabians and the Institute for Public Policy Research, two of the most influential left-leaning think tanks, Michael was then on the Treasury's Council of Economic Advisers and a senior Downing Street advisor to Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Now a professorial fellow at Sheffield University, Michael remains a highly influential figure within Labour policy-making circles as the party formulates proposals to challenge the government. I started by asking Michael Jacobs what the Tory leadership contest looks like from a Labour perspective. I think it's obviously a very weird constitutional situation that a relatively small number of people, we think about 160,000, who are, as they would themselves, I'm sure, admit, not representative of the wider British public, are effectively choosing a prime minister rather than the public as, as a whole. This is, in fact, quite a common phenomenon, not least because the Conservative Party, unlike the Labour Party, has been very adept at getting rid of unpopular leaders, often when they are prime ministers. But we are obviously facing a very critical situation at the moment with the cost of living crisis, the war in Ukraine, climate change crisis, and a number of other things, I would argue, that are deeply wrong with our economy. So this is a strange circumstance, and it is worrying, I think, and should be worrying even for Conservative Party members, that what we have at the moment is the two candidates making all kinds of policy pledges, which are clearly designed, as you would expect, to win them support amongst the Conservative membership who are their immediate electorate, but which are not necessarily good for the country, possibly not affordable, I mean, with, you know, with serious economic consequences. And the kind of arms race of, let's put it frankly, right wing policies, which are now coming out of the two candidates on grammar schools, for example, on fox hunting, and other things which really don't speak to the wider public, I think is very worrying. How have we got to the point, Michael, where a key sort of policy thinker on the centre left, a former advisor to Gordon Brown, is saying that policies proposed by the most right wing, if you like, of the two Tory prime ministerial hopefuls, you're saying that her policies are unaffordable. (laughs) It's almost as if politics has been flipped on its head. How did we get here? I think we've got here for two reasons, uh, one on each side of the political divide, as it were. On the right, I think we've got here because we are now in a new phase of the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party has had many different guises over the years. It's not been a consistent ideological organisation, but has now got itself into a state where, having once been in favour of what we might call, although I'm going to come back to this, fiscal responsibility, sound money, as Rishi Sunak is putting it, which was very much what Margaret Thatcher believed in, has now got itself into a position where that seems to be almost of no concern. And what the right-wing candidate, as you put, Liz Truss, is saying is, let's just do what looks to be immediately popular. So that includes tax cuts and higher defence spending simultaneously with no sense of the economic impact of this, which immediately would have very serious impacts on the fiscal position. And that is a big change, I think, on the Conservative, in the Conservative Party. I think Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, who, although not a member of the Conservative Party, has been deeply influential on it and kind of pulled it over towards the right. That's where it comes from. Well, those two people, I think, have been its uh, biggest embodiments of this kind of populism, if you like. Boris Johnson was particularly ideologically, you know, to be nice to him, one would say eclectic, to be not so nice, one would say kind of all over the place. He didn't really care what it was he was proposing as long as it looked popular. So he has the big promises on levelling up, which clearly required more public spending, but he was also in favour of tax cuts or not tax rises and so on. So one answer, I think, is that the Conservative Party has changed. It's no longer a party that is essentially conservative with a small c, and has gone to the populist right. The other answer is on the left in the Labour Party, where I think most people in the mainstream of the Labour Party recognise that you will never win an election if you look as if you're not economically credible. And therefore, it is important to say, 
when we say we're going to spend money on something, we need to show where the money is going to come from. Now, it could come from taxes or it could come from more borrowing, but we have to be honest and upfront with the British public, not just because that's the right thing to do, but because they simply won't believe us and they won't believe that we will deliver on our promises if we can't do that. And the 2019 manifesto, which made all kinds of promises, such as free broadband, fell down largely, in my view, because it didn't look credible to the British public. They just thought, well, Labour isn't going to do that stuff because they can't afford it and it will be too difficult. And so I think Labour has learned a lesson from the last few years, which is we have to look economically credible. And I'm afraid to say I think now Labour looks much more economically credible than the candidates of the Conservative Party. We're old enough to remember the prawn cocktail offensive, aren't we, Michael, in the early 90s when Labour reached out to the City of London. I remember John Smith, Mo Molum, two very credible, user-friendly figures, if you like, went round the boardrooms of the UK, convincing them that Labour could add up, convincing them that Labour was fiscally responsible. I see real similarities now with the way Rachel Reeves is pitching herself, former Bank of England economist, of course, shadow chancellor, Alison and I have often commented on Planet Normal that she does pass the boardroom sniff test. But can you bring the rest of the party with you in the way that Tony Blair did so it all adds up to a credible whole? It's difficult, isn't it, for Labour when you've got strikes, when you've got you know front benchers who are being sacked for standing on picket lines, when you've got ongoing sort of ideological rows across the party with the best will in the world. And I do think Rachel Reeves is a credible character, but you've got circles to square as well, haven't you, in your party? Labour certainly has to manage itself, as it were, and the leadership of the Labour Party is always managing the membership. It's kind of a a kind of unwritten law of politics that the membership of a party is always likely to be more radical in the Labour Party's sense to the left and in the Conservative Party's sense to the right than what is required to bring a majority of voters to vote for the party in an election. That's kind of almost by definition, isn't it? Because parties are ideological creatures and the public are much less so. So that's always been the case. And of course, Tony Blair did a huge job of party management. And I think most members will dislike some of the things that Keir Starmer is doing, but will go along with it because they recognise that that's what you have to do to win. And to some extent, Keir Starmer has to kind of take on his own party in the same way that Tony Blair did in order to convince people who are not Labour supporters that this man is serious. There is, however, a big difference, I think, between the 1990s and what Blair and Brown did in economic policy and the current situation. I think it's really important to recognise this. And I think Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer do recognise it. I'm not sure it's recognised fully within the media. In the 1990s, largely thanks to what we now know as Black Wednesday, which is when the UK crashed out of the European exchange rate mechanism, the forerunner of the euro, ever since that moment, which led to a big devaluation of the pound, the British economy was doing pretty well. The 1990s saw a very steady form of growth. Employment was rising throughout the 1990s. Most people People got better off and it looked like the economy was doing very well. And in fact, that general boom lasted all the way through the 2000s until the great financial crash of 2008. We would now say we weren't doing nearly as well as we thought. It was kind of built on a mountain of debt that we didn't recognise until the crash occurred. But the political and economic situation looked pretty good for Labour. And so Tony Blair's and Gordon Brown's task in the 1990s was to persuade businesses, the city and others, that Labour would manage the economy well, that there would be macroeconomic stability. That was the big thing that they were calling for, that they were proposing. And then the economy would provide the wealth that Labour needed. You cannot say that now. This is not an economy doing well. We've not had a period of steady growth and so on. We've had a huge financial crash. We've had wages that have been stagnant for over a decade. We've got productivity that has not risen for over a decade, which is, of course, the reason why we haven't got good wages. We've got huge inequality, both between income groups and also between regions. That's why we have a levelling up agenda and we have a climate crisis. So this economy is not in a good state. And that requires a much more interventionist approach by the Labour Party than was required in the 1990s. And yet so much of that is true. I agree with you, Michael. But at the end of June, when Boris Johnson was getting absolutely hammered in the press, even from the so-called conservative press, Keir Starmer was only four, five, six points ahead in the polls. At this stage, Tony Blair was 20, 25 points ahead. Why is it that Labour can't 
at a time of such turmoil in the Tory party, and as you say, at the time of a cost of living crisis, which is really now burrowing into the national psyche, there's a lot of con- deeply concerned people out there, of course, yet Labour can't really open up a clear, commanding poll lead. Is that because of the policies or is that because of the leader? Well, I think it's always a bit of both. Leaders are very important because the media focus almost entirely on the leader, perhaps the shadow chancellor. But most members of the public could barely name, I suspect, most of the other members of the shadow cabinet. And that's true always of oppositions. And I don't think Keir Starmer has yet established an attractive enough personality to many members of the public. And Tony Blair was a very charismatic person. And Gordon Brown was a formidable parliamentary operator. And I think between them, they had much more political personality onto which the public could grasp um, and get a sense of who they were. And I don't think Keir Starmer has yet done that. I do think in his defence, it's been a very difficult period for him to get a hearing. First, he had the pandemic when inevitably the opposition had to support much of what the government was doing and then to criticise from the sides, which isn't a great look. Then we had Boris Johnson's government just imploding with scandal after scandal, where it was very difficult for the leader of the opposition to get a word in edgeways. You know, when your opponents are tearing themselves apart, you let them do it. You know, there have been lots of reasons why I think it's been difficult for Keir Starmer to impose his character and personality. But I do also think it's a it's a failure to articulate policy alternatives. What the Labour Party will tell you, and Keir Starmer has said this publicly himself, the Labour Party strategy since he came in was threefold. He had to reform the Labour Party itself, get rid of the anti-Semites and various other people. He's done that. Then he had to show that the government was incompetent and borderline corrupt. He thinks he's done that. And now is the third stage when he has to say, OK, we agree that Conservatives aren't the right choice for the country. Why Labour? He would now say, I'm getting on to the why Labour. Last week, he did say, you know, Labour will fight the next election on the economy and we will have a plan for growth and so on. And he's begun to flesh out the policies for that. So I think we will see more of the policies over the next six months, a year. And I think inevitably that will allow us to see more of Keir Starmer, the personality as well. Of course, everyone would acknowledge that an opposition party doesn't want to wheel out its policies too early ahead of a general election, because, of course, the opposition always nicks the best ones. And the Tory party has done that to Labour in the past on several occasions. But doesn't Labour need to come up with a better, more coherent response to this cost of living crisis. It isn't just poorer, lower income, more vulnerable families that are suffering. It's the squeezed middle where elections, as you know well, Michael, are won and lost. Don't we need a really coherent set of policies? For instance, isn't it time to, as the Green Party in Germany is doing, saying, look, let's just suspend these renewable subsidies on people's electricity bills. If we are going to pay renewable subsidies, let's shift them to general taxation because that is more progressive because, of course, lower income families pay a higher share of their incomes on fuel and energy. So for the duration of this energy squeeze, this cost of living squeeze, isn't it time to put a moratorium on those payments? Wouldn't that be real polity? Wouldn't that be the kind of thing that Tony Blair would have done, grasping the nettle, making some members of the party uncomfortable, but winning some plaudits, albeit unspoken, from the silent majority? I think that policy is the right one now, but I don't agree with your characterisation of it because as long as the levies remained in place but were paid for by the government, that is through general taxation rather than by consumers, um, then that would not be an anti-green policy. Um, It would maintain the, the subsidies in place for renewable energy but just change the way they were paid for. Taxation is much more progressive than energy bills are, by which I mean much more of taxation is paid for by the rich than is paid for on energy bills. So it would be a much fairer way of paying for those subsidies. You can't get rid of the subsidies. Those subsidies have been in place for a number of years in order to get our renewable energy up to more sustainable levels and have been very successful in doing so. The subsidies, the new subsidies are very, very small because wind and solar are much cheaper now than fossil fuel energy. Um, But you can't uh, just get rid of the levies because that would be to break the contracts that the government has signed with renewable energy suppliers. But I think taking them off bills and putting them onto general government expenditure would be a good thing. And I think you can defend that both on grounds of fairness and without conceding anything on climate change policy. 
But in general, I think you make a much bigger point. I don't think this is one just for the Labour Party. If the energy price increases next year, the end of this year and next year are what have now been projected. So taking an average energy bill up to £3,800 or thereabouts, this is an emergency. Most people, the median income in this country, that is the income in the middle of the distribution is about £30,000. Most people will not be able to afford these bills in and maintain anything that they would think of as a normal standard of living. And for some people, those kinds of sums will be between a third and a half of their entire income. This is simply not supportable. That will be an emergency of the same kind that we saw with COVID when emergency action was taken. We closed the economy down and we introduced a furlough scheme by which the government paid the wages of millions of workers. We are going to need to find radical measures to deal with this. That's actually less for the opposition, not in government, than it will be for Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss and the Conservative government, who will be, I think, social tariffs under which poor people pay a much lower tariff, uh, those on means-tested benefits than others, is on the table. I think uh, the VAT cut, the green levies should be on the table. I think even nationalising energy companies in order to require them to charge lower tariffs or subsidising them in the way that the French government does, which is why it's been able to keep its energy bills down. So I think everything should be on the table for Labour and for the Conservatives under these conditions. So why aren't we hearing it, Michael? This is an open goal. It's fallen to journalists like me, campaigners, to point out that we are facing an energy emergency. Why aren't Labour really getting in there and giving the Tories a run from their money and saying, look, anyone can see you don't need to wait for the off-gen price cap to be upped. You can see from the wholesale prices and looking at the algorithm, which is publicly available, the cap on average bills in the new year is going to be a lot nearer four grand than three. And that is, as you say, I completely agree, a national emergency. I think there will be, without wishing to be alarmist, pretty mass non-payment. You'll get millions of people saying, come on then, cut me off and see what happens. I think you're right. I think we will see this very soon from Labour. I do think this is coming. I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree that it should have possibly come already, but give it a few days and I think it will. Final question, Michael. Is he Kinnock or is he Blair? I'm talking about Keir Starmer, of course. And the only answer that any loyal member of the Labour Party, even an independent commentator like myself, can say is that he is Keir Starmer. (laughs) And we don't know. Well done. (laughs) There's actually a serious point here, I think, which is that I think electoral politics under the current economic and social circumstances is very volatile. We are not going to see another election until 2024. That is two years away, two years that look like they're going to be incredibly difficult for a large number of people. It is certainly possible, I think, that a new Conservative leader who swept everything apparently from the last 12 years, 14 years uh, away and said we've got a new plan could win back the confidence of the British public. I don't think that's impossible. Uh, I think Boris Johnson couldn't have done that. So I think the Conservatives were right by their own lights to get rid of him. But equally, I can see that person just failing to deal with the issues and the economy looking like it's in even more trouble, people really suffering and the Labour Party getting a big majority. Both of those things are possible and most likely probably something in between. So I think there is everything to play for. And you can ask me that question again after the next election and I will be able to tell you confidently whether Starmer was a Kinnock or a Blair. Professor Michael Jacobs, as ever, great to talk to you. Thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. My pleasure. So great, Liam, to hear a very thoughtful, intelligent voice from the left, which we feel is lacking, don't we, in our politics. I thought Michael Jacobs made a very good point when he said that Boris didn't care what policy he had so long as it was popular. I think that is absolutely fair comment. But I would say now we are in the politics of the playground on both sides, which is one reason why the kind of meaningful reform that Tony Blair came to office to deliver for education, for the NHS, I think it's hardly possible now for a political leader to do anything without somebody shouting, gaff, U-turn. It's just exhausting. And at a time when, as Michael Jacobs admitted to you, and you have kept telling me, co-pilot, it is an emergency. And I thought it was interesting to hear him say, give it a few days before Labour unveils some of these absolutely 
desperately needed crisis policies. It's as though the political class is just looking the other way from what is going to be one of the most challenging times for us since the Second World War. Just tiny point, co-pilot. Just talking about the next election, which it looks like Liz Truss will be fighting for the Conservatives unless they bring back Boris. Labour go into it with approximately 200 MPs. They will need to win 120 plus Tory seats to even get close to a commons majority. And they'll need to win over 70 seats just to be the largest party, even if the Lib Dems make some gains. So if I were in charge of Labour, I would ditch Keir Starmer tomorrow, get in Andy Burnham or Rachel Reeves or Lisa Nandy, somebody waiting for Keir Starmer's personality to turn up. Like waiting for the 19 bus, (laughs) co-pilot. Now on to our listener emails. Please, please keep your wonderful messages coming. We love reading them. And as co-pilot Halligan will always point out, I nick them outrageously for my Daily Telegraph column. So you do get your thoughts into print. This is from Joe. I think this is a brilliant email from Joe. I'm coming to the end of my fixed price energy tariff. In the last year, I have paid £1,224 for my gas and electricity. In the coming year, it looks like I will pay £5,444, an extra £4,220. I am a single parent on a relatively low income. Where is this extra £4,000 supposed to come from? And Michelle says, referring to the Rishi Sunak plan, Michelle says, does the patient get £10 for every appointment RNHS cancels? Perhaps cancer patients should be compensated for the misdiagnoses and delayed treatments that will ultimately condemn them to death. It's common practice at my GP surgery to keep callers on hold for 45 minutes before cutting them off so that you have to call back again and rejoin the queue so Christ knows how you're supposed to cancel an appointment if you can get one in the first place. Quite right, Michelle. It's just the more I think about that Rishi policy, it's it's like you're on the Titanic, right? (laughs) And you're chucked in the lifeboat and you get chided for not turning up to the captain's table on time. I mean, it's completely (laughs) mad. You get fined for not putting the deck chairs in the right order on the deck of the Titanic, Mr Halligan. This is from Jane. Kemi Badnock's written that she played a part in getting Tavistock closed and she wrote a piece about her experience of dealing with the civil service. I think a lot of the public want Kemi to be Minister for Education in the Cabinet. She won't let children down. Make Kemi Home Secretary even. She'll sort out the civil service. Liz Trust, meanwhile, says she wants to make wolf whistling illegal. The public doesn't care about that. And Rishi Sunak wants to fine people £10 if they don't attend a doctor's appointment. I think, again, the public thinks that's mad. I sincerely hope Kemi Badenoch does get a cabinet position and is then made leader of the party to win back power from Labour after the next election, you understand. Best wishes from Jane. Amazing how many of our listeners, Alison, think that Kemi did really well during the uh, leadership campaign. Yes, there's a lot of support for Kemi and we'll come back to this, I hope, on another podcast. But she wrote a very important piece in the Sunday Times this week talking about the pressures she'd been under from the civil service and from other ministers trying not to deal with the trans issue, which has been infiltrating our institutions. I think that may turn out to be one of her most valuable contributions. This is from Paul. Great to have you both back in the rocket. Missed your weekly news reflections. Constant reference is made to SMEs, whilst our micro-business, up to nine-ish employees, go largely ignored. We have four employees, turnover around 250,000, and employ around 25 freelancers at various times throughout the year, which accounts for up to 100,000 directly paid fees from our main contractors. Companies like ours are a mainstay in UK business economy and employment, but we're largely excluded from government grants and support as they focus on companies of 25 employees plus. We get no tax breaks while other countries promote encouraging growth. During COVID, many like us were penalised under the JRS scheme as we use dividends as earnings which were excluded. Our 75,000 cash business reserves were wiped out. 
We shelved and are now repaying taxes from during the COVID period. We borrowed the maximum of 50,000 under BBLS, that's the business loans, but decided to soldier on. And now we are slowly bouncing back with no help from government and ridiculous increases in taxation, which will not help us or our industry to re-establish itself. We've suffered terribly under the rudderless government of recent times and we desperately need leaders who are prepared to forsake personal ambition for sensible long-term recovery policies. My ballot paper will be landing on the doormat shortly. Sunak or Truss, neither fills me with hope. But here's hopingly, Paul. Great email from Paul there. So many people feel like that. I get lots and lots of emails from business owners. These aren't fat cats. These aren't the Tories' mates. They just think it's completely mad, as I do, to raise corporation tax from 19 to 25%. At this point, we should be holding corporation tax where it is or even cutting it in order to encourage the growth that we so desperately need. This is from Mike. Dear Liam, it was the autumn of 1973. The sun was shining. Pink Floyd and Mike Oldfield were in the album charts. And I wandered off to Newcastle Poly, clutching my A-level in economics to read business studies. I thought I'd learn something about how economies work. But after all these years and following the recent leaders debates, I fear I may have been proved wrong. There's currently an increasing groundswell of opinion from our political leaders for tax cuts to occur. There's also an overwhelming groundswell of opinion from the Bank of England that interest rates have to rise. One policy puts money back into the economy, while the other takes it away from the economy. What on earth is going on? I know the Bank of England are independent, but the two policies seem to me to be totally contradictory. Can you shine some light on this for me, please? Thanks a lot, Michael. There's so much you could say here, Michael, but this is the situation that we're in. When you've got such high inflation, unless the Bank of England raise interest rates, when other economies are raising interest rates, the pound will fall. We'll end up importing lots of inflation through a weaker pound. I do think the Bank of England should be raising interest rates. But in order to try and help households and firms get through this cost of living squeeze, I think they need help on the tax side, too. I don't think that is contradictory. I think it's just indicative of the really difficult situation we're in. Do you know, co-pilot, just as an aside, Charles Moore, one of our distinguished contributors, former editor of The Telegraph, wrote that Rishi Sunak had told him that as Chancellor, he secretly urged the Bank of England to raise interest rates. What do you think of that? I think it's dangerous when chancellors start publicly pushing the Bank of England one way or the other. I think that's the job, frankly, of people like me, newspaper columnists, other informed commentators, and indeed the public as a whole, business leaders, to make their views clear. I think the Bank of England should have been raising interest rates a lot earlier, as I've said many times on this podcast. I think the Governor Andrew Bailey was far too complacent, the whole of the Monetary Policy Committee pretty much, by saying that inflation would remain transitory I think it's, again, a really cheap point to make for our Chancellor to be publicising that he's been pushing the Bank of England around. That's how you undermine the Bank of England's credibility, credibility that is now sorely needed. Back to the NHS, Alan says, Most of us dread the day we develop an illness that requires us to go into the system just as much as we dread the illness itself. That's certainly true of my family. I have a number of medical worries at the moment, but I can't bring myself to go through the dispiriting experience of contacting my GP surgery. What the GPs don't seem to know is the situation is at least twice as bad as they think it is because of the millions of people like me whom they have successfully discouraged from seeking help. Absolutely, Alan. And finally, this is from Rob. Alison is right. I'm not going to read out any more Halligan because I just like that sentence. That's email of the week right there. That's it. <laughs> Alison is Put it on a T-shirt. You know that's true. You know it makes sense. Uh, we'll read out the rest of Rob's email <laughs> next week in case it in case it deteriorates from there. <laughs> quit, quit while you're winning. <laughs> <laughs> quit while we're ahead. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week. It's my turn, Alison. Okay. Should we just choose Rob, just as my kids would say, (laughs) just for the lols, which stands for laugh out loud. 
anyone who sends in an email saying Alison is right is guaranteed a planet normal mug. I no, think, no, 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 I think no, we should that'd give... That'll be a quantitative easing in planet normal <laughs> mugs. They'll lose their value. But don't, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> we don't want to stoke inflation, which is bad enough already. I think we'll give one to Rob for agreeing that Alison is right. And we should give one to Paul for his account of what it is to run to keep... Nine or ten employees, Liam, yeah, you know, to give their family an income and so on. These completely underregarded backbones of our society um, in whom the Conservative Party used to be quite interested, didn't they? So, OK, then, Rob and Paul, send us an email, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk, put the words mug winner in the subject heading and send us your postal address and a rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug will wing its way to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, jolly well hope you do, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find us so the fantastic Planet Normal family can grow. Did I mention Alison is right? Did I mention that? (laughs) The T-shirts are being printed now. (laughs) I'm going to get it tattooed across my head backwards so I can read it in the mirror. (laughs) And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever. To Rob for telling us all that Alison's right. And to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.